it's always funny, like, like my neighbor who, like, every once in a while, like, he figured out what I do, so he'll talk to me about socks, and I'm like, do you listen to the compound? And I'm like, oh my god, like, that's, like... I'm going on! Oh, yeah. All right, he's gonna love this episode. Yeah, like, just, like, it's it's when it's, like, people that are, like, totally outside of your work realm. That's what blows you away, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, where, wait, where do you, your neighbor where, where do you live? Um, Astoria. Okay, awesome. Michael uh, lived in Astoria before mm-hmm. moving to Long Island. Okay. So... Yeah, you guys I, have the good restaurants. I um, love Astoria. How long have you been there? Five years. Five, mm. Yeah, five years. Okay. I wish I could have afforded to buy in 2017 when I moved to the neighborhood because so I cannot everyone. afford to buy in that so, neighborhood. So now. does everyone now. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Like, um, while the rest of the city was having like huge drops in. Um, you know, like real estate prices, Astoria booked a record condo sale, like 1.6 million for a two bedroom condo in, I mean, it's a new building. Who is buying in Astoria now? It's young people, right? Yeah, young families. Like, you know, so if you're kind of like early 30s and you want your first piece or, you know, you have like a kid where you're like, okay, we'll stay here until the kid has to go to school. um, You're probably buying in Astoria. That's what Mike did. Yeah. And then I think he did Brooklyn for a few years and then ended up in the big house. Because mm-hmm. the kids get bigger and their yeah. toys get bigger and I, the, the dog th- gets bigger. Everything gets, everything <laughs> everything starts to close in eventually. All right, let's get let's get everybody sound checked. Uh, we'll get Chris sound checked. Anybody reporting after the bell today? Today, uh, Shake Shack. Uh, nobody cares but you. Look, Shannon Shakosha bought this for us. Oh, nice. I like it. Oh, that's where it came from. Yeah. All that's right. Like, that's unnecessary. I feel like I'm very close to Josh. Yeah, get the f*** out of here. I can't. My mic's right here. <laughs> All right, let's listen. I was telling Carlton this. So I went to an ENT this morning. That's where I was. Because I'm snoring. So I'm snoring at this point oh. to, the, to the point of divorce. Oh. <laughs> so we were in... Uh, so awful. We were in uh, Savannah and Charleston and like she was just like hitting me with pillows. And I woke up the next day. I'm like, you know what? I don't believe you that it's as bad as you say. So uh-uh. Does she record you? Dude, it's like an animal. Can I do this into the mic? I don't, do I want this out there? Wait. Yeah. Oh. Oh, you're oh, wild. Oh, you're, you're an wow. animal. It's you're, like a wild. Wait, you're an animal. Wait, there's, this is my greatest hits, but there's one that's worse. It's like a wild animal. You sound right? like a wildebeest. Oh. Oh. It's so like I deep. Can't. It's, it's deep. It's sonorous. You can't, yeah. sleep. You can't sleep through that. No, no but you could get nasal strips, though. She must be so mad at you. Nasal strips. Just remove your nose. You get I your didn't nose try removed. that yet? <laughs> Listen, I might need surgery, but the good news is it's not not fixable, mm-hmm. right? So he's like, how much are you drinking? I'm like, well, that night I had wine at dinner, but <laughs> yeah. I wasn't like I wasn't like pounding tequila, although I have done that, too. <laughs> but it's every night like that. So it's not, a, it's not about that. He's yeah. like, no, here's what it's about. I looked at you. You have an, a narrow passageway that you breathe through okay and then you have a drink and then your tongue is lazy oh yeah and then yeah. your tongue lays on the palate and vibrates as air tries to pass to and to and fro <laughs> so i'm like all right fix it he's like well it doesn't work that way we have to do sleep study we have to do he's like I've, a whole thing so. i've always wanted to do a sleep study because i hear like you just get to go to like this really peaceful place no it's at home they send oh. you home with equipment okay it's a, it goes on your fingertip. Uh-huh. It's a watch, like a wristband. Yeah. And then that connects to something that you, a sticker that you put right at the base of your throat. Oh, I remember like years ago, it was like, I didn't do it, but it's like, you yeah. get to go to like a place. And, you get to and go to Tom Brady's cryo chamber. 
You get to go to Michael Jackson's uh, sarcophagus. No, so they so they they sent me home with this equipment, which I'll probably lose or break. But uh, then they get a reading from that mm-hmm. of how often are you moving, what position are you sleeping in, mm-hmm. how like how I guess hard it is for air to pass through. Yeah, and then from there they say what you have to do. So uh, I don't know why I'm telling this story, but yeah, what? I, I'm not sure. But uh, the important part, the hard part, is admitting you have a problem, <laughs> which I, which I I now fully admit. Now that you have the like evidence, though, you can't. De- yeah. Dude, I, I mean, that's the one of the worst things I've ever heard. So it, it should be like a sound effect for the show, though. Oh yes. boy! Put my mic on. Go ahead, hit one. You want to hit one? No. Do one. Do just do one. Not into All right. it. All right. How we doing on time? Ready to go? Getting close. All right. Do you have any sleeping problems that you want to get off your chest before we start? Oh, no, man. Thank God I'm in that department. Are you sure? I How would so, you know? I sleep so good. Like, well, you know, that's a good point. Are you being told that you're good in that department? <laughs> like, that's not, actually not a good to get point. personal, but no, it's no, so, that, okay. that's actually a good point. I would say from past your mom tells you that it's fine. From past experience, right. I have not had any complaints there, so I would imagine that I'm solid. How old are you? Twenty two. Oh man, I wish I was that. How old are you? Twenty nine. All right. So give it a, give it a few years. A few more pandemics and a few more years. We'll see if you're still good in that department. I think 29 it's, is like the sweet spot of life. 29 is great. I wish I was 29. I feel old. No. I'm not going to lie. Do you compared old. to yeah. who? Yeah, I, I I don't know. Compared to some of the other people, I feel like, damn. In this, in this room, you're a child, sir. Compared to 29-year-olds, I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> I hurt my back sneezing. Like, hurt my back. Fell down to the you ground. Do you have a hernia or something? You had, like, a real thing. Yeah, I couldn't. I was paralyzed. I like, <laughs> I sneezed and like my entire body locked up, and I slowly fell to the ground and I couldn't move. Are people hitting you with E Trade baby stuff all week because of the Super Bowl? No, no. I don't. I don't check my mentions. Just Tony Stick. Did you see any of those? Did you see any of those jokes? No, I didn't. I did. So it was my joke originally. I said, "You want to feel old now? This is the. You want to feel old? This is what the E Trade baby looks like now." And I put a picture of Batnick. <laughs> <laughs> and then the E-Trade baby came out of retirement this weekend so I want I actually missed that commercial was it the actual baby like grown up the baby's in the woods fishing like yeah. hiding out and they I guess Morgan Stanley people land in a helicopter and they're like we need you back mm. and he's like I'm not coming back and they're like you don't understand people are investing based on memes he's like alright I'm in and he gets on the helicopter not bad no it was it was not bad it was so weird saying E-Trade by Morgan Stanley though because yeah. you think about like what E-Trade was in like the late 90s it was like the anti-Morgan Stanley yeah. I could have told you it would end that way really because anything that starts out as where the anti-blank True. eventually loses the like, Fed the Fed's gonna buy Robin Hood dude do you know, <laughs> do you know who, hasn't it already effectively <laughs> yeah you yeah. know who bought Wealthfront no UBS could you think of a bigger antithesis to what Wealthfront said they were doing? All the wow. Silicon Valley dudes that like were customers of, of Wealthfront are now customers of UBS. It's pretty hilarious. No, oh. not what they signed up for. Yeah. Right. So all of these like um, startups where they're going to like disrupt and we're going to take over Wall Street. No, you're going to get bought and harvested yeah. for organs. Disrupt like, until we have our exit. And then written off like eventually like mm-hmm. because none of this is worth anything. So – it's I, I found that one ironic. So yeah, I guess Morgan Stanley buying E Trade was not totally a shock. I wouldn't I wouldn't have guessed that it would have been them. What do you mean none it. of this is worth anything? They were bought by one for one point four billion dollars. I know, but dude, do you know what do you know what E Trade was worth at its peak? Yeah, yeah. No, it's what? Was it forty probably, billion? Probably it probably got bought at uh twenty percent of its prior value. Of its I mean, peak value. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's a that's a recurring uh, that's a recurring theme. All right, are we getting going? Coming in with three clocks. Do it, guys. Don't get nervous. This is John. John is the director. Very professional. Tom <laughs> and Friends, episode thirty-four. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Masterworks. Duncan, I bet you didn't know, because I didn't know, that the total wealth held in the art is estimated to be $1.7 trillion, and Deloitte projects it to grow by $900 billion by 2026. You're taking the over or the under? I'll take the over. You'll take the over. Okay. All right. Well, Masterworks, is is uh, they're buying a lot of art. Companies already over $1 billion at evaluation. Uh, I am making a small contribution. I've got a few paintings, not to brag. If you are interested in learning about how you can invest in a Basquiat, I've got, what do I have? I have a, uh, who's that? Uh, do I have a Picasso? Yeah, you have a oh, Picasso. You let, have a Christine Benz. I, I do. Last night I was watching Midnight in Paris. Do you ever see that movie? Yeah, great movie. Great movie. The guy in Billions plays Pablo Picasso. Right. Great movie. All right, anyway, uh, where do people go, Duncan, to learn more? They go to masterworks.art slash compound. Masterworks.art slash compound to learn more. And please see the disclaimer at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Shannon got this for us. Is that from her? Yeah, I love her. All right. So first of all, we have two guests of the show today that are new guests of the show. And I'm really excited about this because they're both incredibly smart. Uh, and sleep beautifully for, <laughs> from from all accounts. Uh, so first things first, I want to welcome to the show Carlton English. Carlton, welcome. So great to have you. Thank you. I'm so see how I multitask? Here. Nice. Okay. All right. I'm going to introduce you as a Wall Street reporter for Barron's. That's your title? Yep. Okay. That's me. And you have been at New York Post, not page six, but like covering finance for New York Post. Covering finance for New York Post, but it was fun the few times I did get to write for page six because hedge overlap. fund guys. Yes. Yeah. Every once in a while, they, they start buying bottles and acting out and then you have to migrate over. And they also have big divorces. That's right. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's true too. And Chris Sidiel? Yeah. All right. Chris Chris Sidiel is here and Chris is the co-CIO of the Ambrose Group. And Chris, welcome to the show. Are you, are you nervous? Are you excited? No, I'm excited both? to be here. You pumped I'm up? Excited, yeah. Okay. And I just learned today that you're from Long Island also. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, correct. Long Island boy. We're neighbors. Yeah. Pretty much. All right. How do you like being on Long Island? Uh, I tell this to my partners all the time. I cannot see myself living anywhere else. Seriously. You work? You, are you working mostly remote? Or are you coming into the city? Or what are you doing? Yeah. No, no. So we have an office in Melville. You know, okay, the, uh, sure. corporate center. So that's easy. Yeah. You so go to Blackstone for uh, steak? Yeah, that's funny. That's I, my I, shit right I there. took a few clients there for sure. Yeah. yeah. Great spot to take clients. Absolutely. Uh, they Because they do sushi there too. Yeah. So you never know what people are going to be in the mood for. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, guys, uh, we're in the middle of an earnings season and this is where I want to start. So a lot of companies are, are beating earnings, but by a much slimmer margin than in the post-pandemic period. I'm just going to go to this from Savita. From B of A, quote, a solid but slimmer 5% beat 358 S&P 500 companies um, as of last week, which was 83% of all the earnings. 
have reported. It's a 5% beat. Um, and I think uh, 60% of companies beat both on, on both sales and earnings per share. That's above the historical average of 39%. But again, it's slowing. And to me, the thing that stands out the most is how many high-profile blow-ups there, there have been as a result of – like Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, Meta obviously comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But there's probably 50 others that we could all think of. And then the other thing that I've noticed is that companies beating earnings, the stock goes down anyway. Maybe it goes down less than than what 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 otherwise would have happened. I'm not an analyst, but I I was reading through Shopify's quarter, looking at the the numbers, and I like I'm waiting for it. Why was the stock down 18 percent after earnings and another 11 percent today? Oh my god, it was 900 two days ago. It's now 655. It's unbelievable the air that's just coming out of these names. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, a little bit of it's not even bad news. It's just not great euphoric news. Yeah. You know, we know that there's going to be a slowdown in some of these tech names, one, because of what the Fed's doing. And two, we're moving to the post-pandemic economy. But if investors aren't hearing that we're going to have this massive growth that we had, which was not real growth or I mean, it was kind of we knew it was euphoric growth. They retreat. It's it's insanity. I haven't seen it before like this. It's like no, there's like no valuation support for these companies, and so if they're supposed to earn fifty cents and they earn forty nine cents, the stock is worth half of what it was. Revenue I mean, was up forty one percent year over year, fifty seven percent for the year. But but they said revenue growth for twenty twenty two will be lower than the current fifty seven percent. So obviously they were already priced for the for the growth and. Not that valuations matter on the way down, but they're still high. They're still like really high, even after getting cut in half or, or uh, twice. Chris, you're a vol trader. This this or, like this should be, to some extent, a really good environment for your strategy or for people that are looking to put your strategy on. What do you, what do you think about yeah, what's going abs- on right now? Absolutely. You know, I think uh, from a positioning standpoint, you're seeing a lot of opportunity, right? So what you're seeing actually take place under the hood is a lot of aggressive movement, right? And that's never a good thing when people are moving very aggressively, whether it's bullish or bearish, right? That quick liquidity pulling uh, it's showing you that people are not too sure as to what's really going to happen, right? So that's what we were talking about before we got on, right? It's like you're seeing stocks rally 20, 30% up, right? And then drop 20, 30% down and over the course of 24 hours, right? So that sense of unsurety and kind of also what you we were talking about before with some of the positioning that's driven from the option standpoint, that's causing this dynamic where you're having this influx of large moves, right? It's moving very rapidly both ways. And I think, you know, as a vol trader, it it leads to a really interesting market where we're kind of embracing this in a sense, as opposed to saying, oh, no, you know, we kind of don't want it. No, this is plays right into your hands. Um, the repricings are happening in 10 minutes that ordinarily I feel like would have been like a, at least a week. Like people would sell stocks off on earnings. Yes, but it's very rare that they would take a third of a company's market cap off overnight or two thirds or two thirds mm-hmm. in some cases. And this is not taking place over weeks. It's like taking place the next day. Is that like new based on what you've seen? Yeah, you know, so one of the uh, reasons why we kind of came out and started this fund is because of the dynamic of the dealer gamma hedging, right? So we have to address the elephant in the room. And the fact is, is that three times the amount of short dated options are being traded in this environment prior to two years ago. Who's Who's doing that? So it's just a, it's a flux of institutional, right? I think I sent over that chart of you know the large institutions. We got we got all your charts. We're going right. to throw that stuff up in a minute. Then you also have the fact that there's a large influx from retail, right? And the fact that everybody's so center focused on short dated options specifically leads to the you know quote unquote dealer gamma hedging, 
Right, so what you're seeing short dated weekly options you're talking about, and also monthlies. Okay, right? so what does that mean? What does dealer gamma hedging mean? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll explain. So I was about to explain it, but I'm going to give you <laughs> I'm going to give you a crack at it. Yeah. So let's say if an individual comes out right and buys a call option, what ends up happening is the dealer is now short the call, the call option, and in order to hedge to be delta delta neutral, right? So post dot frank, you're not allowed to inventory a certain amount of risk, right? So you have to call, carry this sort of delta neutral type of book. You need to come in and buy stock, right? So now if the stock continues to go up from the fact that the dealer has now bought stock, then that means that they now need to reprice and buy more stock, right? So as the deltas increase, they're synthetically driving the price higher. And then you have people that are seeing this and they're coming in chasing, right? And you have a dynamic as to what took place during January of last year with GameStop and AMC. And what people fail to understand is it works to the downside as well. Right, so when you have a bunch is that of people, what we're seeing now that 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 process in reverse. Yeah, yes, you're seeing two way action both ways, right? In a very thin market, right? So the liquidity is thin to begin with, and then you have the factor of to this is transpiring, and what makes the whole the whole bubble kind of so much worse is the fact that the majority of these option makers, uh, sorry, these 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 option participants are driven by four main market makers, right? So it's almost like there's only four real hands that are controlling the majority of listed options in the U.S. equity space. What should there be? What are there used to be? Well, I think, you know, over the course of the years, it's it's sort of been kind of monopolized by these four main groups. Who right? are they? All right, so I'll come out, right? Citadel. So the military, Street, Hollywood. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, Illuminati. Tell us, tell us the truth, damn it. Yeah. So, right. So, and, and what the interesting part about it is that when things go risk off, everybody acts in the capacity to pull liquidity, right? So the job of a market maker is, Okay, when things are risk off, you come in and you provide liquidity, right? But what you're seeing now is no, when things go risk off, they're actually jumping off screens and pulling liquidity. So they're not really market makers in the traditional sense. They're market makers when it's good to be a market maker. So when they step out, who steps in? That's the problem. That's, that's, that's the problem. Right? That's when Batnick steps in. Right. Yeah, but, but, but let me give you guys a, a quick example real fast, right? So people can actually understand from, from a banking standpoint how impactful this is. Because prior to Dodd-Frank, if you were a trader on the desk at a large institution and you were long Apple, you were able to say, you know, if the stock's down 10, 15%, it's okay, I'll take down more, right? And that's what led For to the house. These, these, For right, the house exactly, account. exactly, yeah. right? I'll take down more, it's fine. But now, post dot Frank, because of, you know, all the regulatory actions that transpire, you can no longer do that. So what will happen is the risk manager will tap the trader on the shoulder and say, hey, you need to make sure that you're hedged by the end of the night. And what that causes is the fact that the quote-unquote market maker has to go out into the listed market now and say, shit, I have to pull liquidity, right? So I have to make sure I'm hedged. So what am I doing? I'm grabbing globs of liquidity. But whereas before, I could have just said, give me more Apple. I can't do that. I have to sell Apple, right? And it's leading to these large reflexive This is movements. how you get a stock. Like, let me use PayPal as an, as oh an example. Oh, my God. What a wow. shit show. So PayPal, PayPal six months ago is a $300 billion market cap. And then it gets cut in half falls to 180 and then they report earnings and the earnings were are a disappointment goes from 180 it's what is it 105 it's unbelievable it's 300, so, it was 210 so in june so it gets cut in half a second time after already having gotten cut in half and there's i think it's i, I don't even think it's had an up week since the year <laughs> since uh 6 months ago like i think every week it's lower and people look at that as like wait a minute did wall street really think that this company was worth 60% more than it's worth today, 70% more, maybe. 
But do they really think it's worth 70% less right now? I don't know. I just – all I see is just mechanical selling. It doesn't appear that anyone's expressing an actual opinion on the stock. Cor- correct. And I think my view is that this market is so focused oh, – well, so positional-based, right? Everything is positional-based as opposed to prior markets where people look at value and think about value, right? And that's why I think the most important dynamic in this market is sidestepping the exogenous events, Right. When you catch people off sides, like a March of 2020, right, February of 2020, when everybody was short a ton of variance and volatility across the board, and it was like the straw that broke the camel's back with this, you know, COVID headline, then it's like people are deleveraging all in the same manner at the same time. Yeah, right? everyone all at once. Yeah. Okay. Wait, uh, hold, hold on. Before we move off, I have a question. What about the 25 million retail accounts that came in? They're not providing any liquidity. I know they're like small in size, but there's a lot of them. Right, but when you think about the job of a liquidity provider, right? And you think about how retail trades, they don't trade in that manner as sophisticated, right? They're all liquidity. They don't takers. trade yeah. counter cyclically. Right. Exactly. They, they <laughs> right. trade exactly. in the direction of the market. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So they're set, they're adding fuel to the fire on a, any day the Dow is down 500. It's likely that retail accounts in the aggregate are net sellers, right? But not index buyers. Not index buyers. We're talking about like, tr- like people trading their own money. Correct. They're either on margin or whatever, but they're probably not stepping in and saying, let me provide liquidity to the market. Yeah, and that would make sense too, right? Because index buyers you think are not traditionally retail, right? Retail are more so focused on single stock where they're just like, oh, you know, I think- Josh, this great. what's this uh, fundamental, what's this Wells uh, Bank of America chart we're looking at? Um, Let me say, so this is back to earnings, just making the point that fourth quarter is still tracking weaker um, than, here it is up on the big screen. So this is earnings per share revisions in post-COVID quarters. The, the level at 100 represents where we started. You can see that revisions have been happening on the way up every quarter. This quarter is in red, and there is barely any uptick mm-hmm. in, um, in, in revisions for future earnings. And that maybe, listen, maybe the whole Wall Street will be wrong on, you know, this whole consensus will be wrong. But that does not bode well for next quarter or the quarter after the fact that so few companies are giving analysts reason to to uh, raise their expectation. Uh, one bright spot for earnings, though, Carlton, and I know you cover this, has been the banks. So um, you did Morgan Stanley. You did Goldman Sachs. What's your takeaway from what the banks are saying? Because they seem to be positioned well for the current environment. Yeah, I think, um, you know, looking mostly at the big banks, definitely well positioned for a rising rate environment, more so when you're looking at, you know, Bank of America and Wells Fargo there, the pure money center banks. It's going to be interesting when you look at more the investment banking types like your Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Um, The volatility that we've seen in recent weeks probably will help trading desks. Um, And that was a big fear going into this year is, okay, we're going to see a tamp down of volatility compared to what we saw in 2020, understandably. What's going to happen with trading? Uh, the other thing, pipelines this feels for, worse than 2020. It kind of does because for 2020, March 2020, we knew why. You know, and, and it happened like fast. It, it happened, was over. It happened so fast. It was over. It's like okay, yeah, the economy's shutting down. This makes sense. But right, right. now, we're like we're trying to price in what is it going to be? Four rate hikes, seven rate hikes. Is a 50 basis point hike in the midst of it? You got geopolitical yeah, stuff will going there be, on. Will there be war? Exactly, <laughs> right. and. 
especially trying to map out what is going on between Russia and Ukraine in the U.S., you know, I don't think we have a good understanding of the dynamics and the history at play there. So even trying to parse through the market reaction to that, what it means for trading, what it means for banks is kind of tough. But going back to the U.S. banks, if you're looking purely at a rate hiking environment, continued economic recovery, loan growth returning, overall, things are pretty good. You are going to see higher costs. All the banks said that. I mean, for months we're hearing, you know, record bonuses, record bonuses. I mean, what's killing me is like entry level analysts coming in at like 100,000. I mean, I've been, you know, in the workforce about 15 years. (laughs) Yeah. I could not imagine. How many resumes have you sent out this week to Bank of America? I'm not saying that here. I I love my job. (laughs) We're gonna edit that out, right, John? John, can we, can we <laughs> see this big wink? Can we throw up this this green chart? So, talking about like people not feeling uneasy. So, this chart is from Cali Boss, and what it's showing is the percentage of bears uh, plus neutral. So, the, I guess this is AII sentiment. And what's notable about this current spike is that it's happening outside of a 10% drop in the S&P 500. And I think this, there's, two, there's two real simple reasons for this. One is inflation. People are scared, understandably so. They don't like prices keep going up. Number two is that all the stocks that they're owning, aside from the indexes, are blowing up. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing like this really weird dynamic where people are like freaked the F out, even though the indexes are looking like, Pretty okay. Well, right. If Apple and Microsoft were acting more like most stocks, oh, this would be it. a very different environment. You agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. I think like people have these single stock blowups that are extraordinary and they affect their sentiment regardless of what the S&P has done. Mm-hmm. Where is the S&P from, a t- from uh, I don't year know, to date? 8% off its highest ish? Per- I don't know. I mean, it's not, not, it's not that bad. It's not it's not as bad as it feels like. But right the stocks now. that everyone's trading are like <laughs> cut in half and worse. So so let's talk about liquidity. Chris, Josh and I were actually talking about this exact chart two weeks ago. And what are your thoughts? And what we're looking at is uh from the FT, the size of a trade in E mini SP five hundred futures that can be completed at the live quoted bidder offer price. And the liquidity right now, just based on this chart alone, uh, looks really bad. Can you explain? I'm not, I'm not really sure what we're looking at. I understand it says worse liquidity. That's not good. But what am I looking at? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's pretty much uh, literally what the, what it kind of says, right? It's the it's the but depth explain of the, it. Yeah, it's the depth of the order book, right? So let's say you know you have your your uh, offer side and your bid side, right? And what this is telling you is generally historically, if you were looking to go through the order book, right, the top level of the order book you'd be able to get filled on bigger lots. Whereas what's happening now is, you know, now you may only get, be able to get filled, I'm just making this number up, right, on two lots. And then that difference in you getting filled on the two lots to the next level is actually pretty wide, right? So if you have a stock that, let's say, you know, the offer is 100, right, there's only one lot there at 100, and then the next one is at, like, let's say 105, right? So that's pretty wide of a difference. Right? So what are the implications of that, though? So, it's, ga- it's gaps. Right, exactly, right? It's so, trading gaps. So when you think about, people out. When you think about liquidity, right, and it, and it plays exactly into what we're seeing in this environment is that it cuts both ways. Is because we've seen these really fast rallies that skip up, right, specifically like overnight rallies and things of that sort because the depth of the order book has been kind of thin, specifically on the single, knocks, single stock side because people have been more so uneasy to say, well, we're not too sure. Right. So you don't have that same amount of flow. And a lot of things that we track on our end from a liquidity standpoint have been reflecting this as well. Um, obviously, you know, a couple of those things are proprietary, but, you know, we're looking at this and we're saying, you know, liquidity is definitely not what people are making it out to be because it's almost like a false sense of security. Who's missing? Where should that liquidity be, com- be coming from in a normal? Because we still have stimulus going on. 
for some I know it's less it's less than it was, but it's still it's still zero rate policy until March. And there still seems to be plenty of liquidity when you look at like how much money people have in their bank accounts, how much cash on corporate balance sheets. So where is this liquidity uh, supposed to be coming from? So I don't think people are necessarily bear, as, as bearish as what the general consensus is. And I'll explain, right? So over the last two weeks, you've seen a lot of fund inflow into some of the larger equity ETFs, right? And you've seen a large outflow out of the money markets, followed by, you know, kind of the way how we track the ATSs, which are the dark pools, a lot of buying in the dark pools necessarily, specifically over the last week and a half. So the way we're looking at it is, although sentiment may feel like this from a positioning standpoint, it feels like people are kind of going in and saying, okay, we want to buy the dip. But that same type of aggressive, okay, everybody's flocking in to buy the dip. I don't think we're seeing that, right? So I think we're seeing people kind of nibble, if that makes sense, right? So from a trading perspective, it's like, all right, we're going to take a shot here. We're going to take a shot there. Specifically, I, you know, I don't think I can say that, you know, large institutions have stepped away from their equity exposure, right? We went, we're going from massively low rates to now very low rates, right? Does that really impact the Tina effect? And I would argue that it doesn't, right? Because which institution is going to switch their mandate to say that, okay, we don't, we no longer want equity exposure. Okay. So then what's your, what's your actual inflation hedge, right? Because it's actually equities, right? So from a structural standpoint, I still think that there, that, that bid remains in equities. And the longer that the market digests this news, it's going to be more of a bullish case. Right? So you so, think this is like healthy, what we're seeing? We're getting rid of the excess and, and the indices aren't crashing? Uh, honestly, yeah, I, I I do. I do. Now, I, I don't so want like to say- the most egregiously overvalued stocks are losing all their market cap, but the overall market is hanging in there. And you think that that's, I mean, I, I obviously would agree, but- Yeah. And, you know, I think what's surprising to us is how resilient the market has been. And look, we're vol guys, right? So we, we want to see the big vol moves, right? And- the way how we kind of looked at the market, we thought if you would have some of the unwinding and some of the large tech in a time where the majority of the market is exposed to large tech, that it would be more implications on the overall index. We thought, you know, realistically, the overall index would come down more. If you just looked at 500 charts of U.S. large cap stocks, you would say, holy shit, the S&P has to be off 40 percent or more. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, it yeah. feels that way. And if you even watch an hour of TV, Fox Business or CNBC – the impression that you get if you didn't see the ticker is that like we're in a we're in a crash. Yeah. Because every story is and so and so just rep- like Nvidia had one of the best quarters in the history of companies having quarters. Yeah. I think the stock went down eight percent today. Yeah. I have no idea why, other than the phenomenon that you're describing, positioning. Yeah. You know, uh, when I was uh, when I was a prop trader, I was under a senior guy, and he had this really good saying, and and it re- it brings me back to this because. Every day we're seeing negative headlines come out, right? Even to a point, all the geopolitical tensions, right, with war and everything. And it used to go like this. You would say, if you were short a stock, waiting on negative news, and the negative news hits, and the stock does not go down, you get out immediately. Because there's only one direction for it to go. And this market feels like that, where it's absorbing and digesting. But the other way. Right, it's going to go up, right? Right, because, because you know, if you're waiting for some sort of negative news to come out on a, on a name, right, let's just say, oh, you know, some SEC investigation or whatnot hits, stock doesn't go down, you know, everybody's getting squeezed out. So it feels like the market is sort of digesting this. And to us, at least, that's more of a bullish case that as, as long as this kind of plays in this sideway action, right, and you're not having that exogenous type of event that, you know, leads to everybody deleveraging, 
that's more of a healthier look at the market overall. But if somebody if somebody wanted to argue that we're in a bear market, like I wouldn't argue with them. Even though the indices are like 8, 10, 12% off their all-time highs, I'm looking at Target, for example. Like, And there's just – every stock seems to be getting blown up. Yeah, yeah. You know, and from the vol side, right, if you're trading dispersion, you know, you're, you're doing very well, right? Dispersion in tech has been working extremely well because of the fact that this is taking place. But from the overall health of the market, you know, we're generally the guys that are saying like, hey, this market is not too healthy even though it's up because you have those fast deleveraging. But the fact that the market has been able to hang around with all those names down, it's giving us more of a view to say, well, this is probably not really a bad thing. Uh, but there are a couple of other things coming down the road. Is there any sense of how long this sort of shakeout in the markets would last? Is this like a process that is just about going, getting through this quarter or is it playing out throughout the year, do you think? Well, I, that's another thing, because I feel like if we see a very fast move down, then it's going to be met with that sort of panic. But the longer. Well, that's what I, Yeah, I wanted to ask what, you, what you're asking, which is like, how could things go wrong? Because so, all right, so far, we're saying it's orderly. Mm-hmm. mostly because the 10 largest stocks in America haven't blown up yet. Like Berkshire Hathaway is near highs. Um, the banks are pretty good. They're not that big anymore, but they're big enough. Apple and Microsoft seem fine. Alphabet and Amazon are But I'm okay. looking at these things right now. They don't look very good. What is keeping the market up? So the S&P is 10% off its highs, not even. What it's, is Apple keep- and, it's Apple and Microsoft. But Mike, look, here's Microsoft. looks like shit. Yeah, but like pull the chart back. No. Do it now. <laughs> no, Apple's still hanging up there, but man. Yeah, like how does this how does this uh, phenomenon that you're describing go really wrong? Not that you think it will, but like what would that look like? Yeah, again, you know, I think for us, we're focused more so on the exogenous events, the shock events that gets positioning offsides, right? If you give the market a chance to digest these sorts of things, I don't think that it's going to really catch anybody offsides, right? So in, in our opinion, the inflationary narrative, right, the rate hike narrative, the market's digesting all those things. And you're seeing from an intraday level, when you see negative headlines come out on that, the moves are lesser and lesser, right? So from our standpoint, there's two big factors where we think people should be looking at. One, the rate of change of the balance sheet reduction and how that impacts interdeal lending and really the ability for the PBs to extend credit to their larger clients, right? So like an example- Prime like, brokers. Yeah, exactly, right? The, the Archegos, right? The Bill Wangs and the Archegos. Prior markets, what you're able to see is, okay, you know, they're down on one or two names. They're able to come to the PB and be like, hey, guys, can you put it on the arm? You know, we're good clients, yada, yada. You know, going forward, because of that balance sheet reduction, you'll no longer see that, right? So some of the PBs will have to let their larger clients fall to the side, which can be very problematic. Are there are a lot more Archegos. 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 So there are a lot more of those Guys, it's Archegos. It's Archegos. Whatever. I speak Latin. Are there a lot more Bill Wangs out there doing crazy shit or – is that more of a one-off? No, absolutely. I mean, you have to think about it like this. We were in a market. Right, start naming them. Who are they? <laughs> You're gonna get me sued out. Char- of Charlie, to, Charlie Munger. I need to. I, I I'll be right back. I have to put on some hedging trades. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's good. That's good. No, 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 but we've been in a market that has just been going straight up, right? And yeah. it's almost like the gambler effect. When you're at a roulette table, you're you're drunk at a casino and you're winning. Right. Guilty. Like when, Mike. When you're when you're winning, what are you doing? You're you're putting more bets to play, right? You're putting more bets to play. You're using Mike, more margin. You're hot. Right, exactly. Yeah. And we've seen that for the last decade. Right. So now you're definitely gonna have a lot of those guys that were, you know, trading at two times margin, whatever, 
when the market's pulling back. And, and some of that, you are seeing some of that deleveraging right now. Right. right. And I think the secondary component outside Something of the- Something tells me Carlton's going to have a lot of stories to write. Yes, I'm just <laughs> like, the longer, over here. <laughs> the longer this continues, the less likely you are to take a vacation. Right. Yeah. The, the, I think the other thing is is the chance of a policy mistake, right? Because the Fed is acting very aggressively, you know, four-rate hikes, six-rate hikes, whatever. There is a chance of that. It's almost like a boxer in the corner that's just starting to swing when they're unsure Is that about even, it. though, considered an, an exogenous shock anymore? Given how, how can it, it be? It's not. It's nothing. It the call is coming from inside the house. What can they do to shock the markets? That's what I'm saying. We don't know. For that would be a tail risk. Hundred basis right? points. Take in, him, in what if they take away its negative? Say we're going the other way. That would be a tail risk event. <laughs> what's this? Uh, what's this chart? These ETFs have options. What's going on here? Who put this in the doc? Uh, uh, oh, that was this definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was the uh, the chart from Optiber. Right. That's just expressing the fact that. Look. Average daily notional amount traded for options on top 25 U.S. listed ETFs. So these are the biggest ETFs. How many options are being bought and sold based on their price? Right. And if you look at the the notional, right, I mean, it's very clear that that has tripled since 2020. So when you think about going back to what we are saying, dealer gamma hedging and the implications of it, it's only gotten stronger over the course so, of the So, but years. doesn't the awareness of everybody knows what's going on, doesn't like this change the dynamic of markets? I mean, clearly it is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But look, if if guys are kind of pinned to a strike or, you know, have to deleverage, it doesn't matter who knows about it. It's just going to happen. And that's why you've seen over the last year, all these OPEXs, right, the option expiration weeks have been so volatile because everybody knows it, but it still doesn't change the fact that dealers need to get their book in line. You could see the train coming, but it's still going to come. Exactly. Even I, I know you're not, you're not giving advice to anybody, but what advice would you give to like just an average investor who's like, Stocks are moving so fast. Mm-hmm. What do I do? How do I protect myself? Should I protect myself? Yeah, this is me talking our book a little bit, right? As as a vol guy, but really, what he's we, about to sell you the hedge of a lifetime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, grab that, a pen. This is this is really what we tell you know the clients is look, you're in a market that is very reflexive, and there's no doubt about it that U.S. equities naturally have this upward drift. We've seen it over the last two decades, right? But that doesn't mean that you need to be irresponsible with your weight, right? You should think about using that type of, you know, exposure in equities and then also having some sort of protectionary hedge to the downside. So you have an asymmetric payoff so that, look, if markets drop 20%, you have some sort of hedge, right? We're not, and, and people get confused because when they think of vol guys, they think, oh, you guys are perma bears. You want the market to go down. That's like furthest from the truth because naturally we're quants and we understand that this shit's going, it's going up, right? But we're just trying to explain you can do this in a responsible way, right? We're not stock pickers. I'm a terrible value guy, right? I'll just be straightforward with you. But I understand the mathematics enough to understand that, hey, if you pair that with something that acts as a protectionary hedge, you have a very complete portfolio. Do you you position this as hedge or insurance? Because – and a lot of people use those terms interchangeably. But the way that funds like your – I understand what you're doing is unique. But like just the concept of tail risk hedging – to me, it always felt more like insurance. In other words, you put a portion of the portfolio into into that and you say to yourself, this is probably going to bleed. Maybe yours bleeds less than somebody else's. But just in general, if you're always buying puts and the market is not always crashing, like you have to kind of almost think of that as like, hey, my house doesn't burn down every week, but I still want to have insurance on it for the one in the million shot that it could. Now, a stock market crash is not one in the million. It's much more frequent than that. Mm -hmm. But I've always thought of that kind of thing as insurance. Am I thinking about it wrong conceptually? So this is this is the beautiful this is the beautiful picture here. 
you guys are obviously, you know, money managers, right? So let's say you allocate a part to a guy who's running a long-only equity fund, right? And let's say you're checking his book, right? And you realize, wait a sec, every Wednesday at 1 o'clock, this guy buys Apple, no matter what. Every Wednesday, like for the course of a year, you, you let it play out. You guys are going to say, give me my money back because you're an idiot, right? I, there, I can do that. I can code an algo to do that. I can do, I could get somebody to do that. There is no alpha in doing that. The tail risk business is exactly like that. It's so niche that nobody is providing pure alpha in doing so. And I think what we're trying to say is, look, the same way how we have, you know, ran desks as, as, as traders, right, on the prop side, you can structure a book where you don't have to bleed on out, you know, X amount every single year, and you can still get that exposure. The same way how a guy is able to generate alpha by understanding the dynamics as I should be buying Apple here, I should be selling Apple here. That's really the value add that comes into it. Right. And we're so against that like solutions-based tail risk where it's like, okay, every Wednesday we're buying an SPX put and rolling it and rolling it and rolling it and rolling yeah. it, right? The dogmatic approach, th that doesn't generate alpha. That doesn't work in, specifically in this market. Right. So that's something there are ETFs now exactly. that can do that exactly. for you. Exactly. And you, you either have a strong opinion about whether or not that'll work or you don't. Exactly. Um, do people try to use tail risk hedging in a tactical way, meaning in a year like 2020, probably they say to themselves, all right, I don't think the market's going to crash 30% again anytime soon, given what the Fed is doing. But yeah. then in a market like this, we just talked about earnings revisions starting to go flat. We talked about like the Fed uh, now getting very, very aggressive or at least talking like they're going to. Maybe tactically, this is when you put on that tail risk strategy. Like, do you talk to people that are thinking that way? For sure. There's a lot of the sophisticated clients that move in that fashion, right? They'll up their allocation. So they don't always want you, but yeah. like this might be the moment that they really want you. For sure. There's there's times, and, and you're getting that feel. You're getting that sentiment that people are looking at volatility as an asset class to say, okay, you know, in 2020, correlations broke down. Bonds didn't work. Gold didn't work. Obviously, crypto didn't work, right? Equities were down. Everything was down except for vol. Right. So I should be thinking about using fall as some sort of protectionary hedge to the overall book. Um, what's this chart number of U.S. 40 Act funds that use options? I was surprised by this. This is uh, this is mutual funds, closed end funds and ETFs that have options as part of how they invest. I had no idea it was this prevalent or rising this rapidly. Carlton, yeah, what's the story? Are you here? surprised by this? A little bit, but I've actually heard that a lot of these 40 Act funds are also using options as kind of like an income-producing vehicle, too, at a time when it is tough to find yield in parts of the market. So seeing that this I don't know if their shareholders know that, I if doubt, I didn't know that. Yeah, I doubt their shareholders know it because I only recently became aware of that, too. But um, So it doesn't surprise me a ton to see it, but – you know, when you look at the 20-year history, I did not expect it to be that steep. Well, one of the most popular strategies, at least in terms of flows, I got- I, I, Buy right, I hot got, again. Like covered, these covered call strategies. <laughs> these covered, yeah, it's buy right. These buy covered right. call ETFs, like QYLD, for example, it's the NASDAQ 100 covered call. This thing's got $6.5 billion in it. And so it what had, are they doing? They buy the NASDAQ, they sell they're basically, front basically They're basically, uh, they're, giving, they're giving income to investors- which investors are willing to pay for as opposed to just producing the income on their own by selling a portion of their portfolio every month. So if you look at this versus the NDX or you look at like a covered call SPY versus just the SPY, there's like a pretty material gap, but people are willing to pay for convenience. And I kind of get it. They're like, listen, I understand this might not be an optimal strategy, but it's easy. It's giving <laughs> me money every single month, even if it's my own principal. So yep. I think it's a genius product. 
I think from a product standpoint, I, I get that. From a trader standpoint, yeah, it I'm must just, make you suck. Right, exactly. Yeah. Because I'm just like, that's not how alpha is generated. That's not how you know right. money's made. The systematic vol selling is literally what. Look at this chart. This is the, t- the total assets under management for QIL day. Yeah, wow. hey, you should have started one Sick. of those instead. <laughs> what are you doing? If I could invest, why, why you gotta make it so complicated? If I could invest in the to- the AUM of this chart, I would. Like this is only going up. People yeah, love this much higher. People love this, right. especially if we have a negative year for the Nasdaq, which hasn't happened in a while. But I think that's a byproduct of the fact of where where uh, rates are at, right? Because rates have been pinned to the ground, and everybody's like, okay, you know, we need some sort of yield. And you know, as I was telling you guys before, I was part of the exotic derivatives trading desk at BMO, and that was a big reason why structured products are ballooning in the U.S. They overtook the the. What's exposure. an exotic derivative by the by the definition of like what you were trading? Yeah, so, okay, so it'll be like a... CDS or... No, it'll be like a worst of auto callable that's tied to like three names, right? So uh, it's, I'll kind of break it down, make it very easy for you guys. It'll be like, it'll be a basket of Tesla, Amazon, and Facebook, yeah. right? And it will be struck at a 75% barrier. So pretty much what this means is like, you're short of put. So it means as long as as none of these three names drop 25%, you're going to collect the 12% coupon. It's like a structured product for retail, but way more sophisticated. Exactly. Right. Right. So with the RA. It's a three-team parlay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. it. Yeah. Got it. Three-team parlay. Okay. Yeah. Um, you wrote about inflation risk declining. So I, w- I want to read what you wrote and then just like get your take on it. You're saying the inflationary narrative and rate hike is no longer the true hazard. The market is digest- slowly digesting the narrative and adapting to it. I somewhat agree with that. The bond market definitely is. Uh, rate of balance sheet reduction impacting interdealer lending and margin extension to larger clients is more relevant um, along with one-sided. All right. So you feel like if we can get through this period, however long it lasts, there's like a lot of potential benefit to everyone being on the wrong side again. Yeah. I think this market – is completely different from the market that we've seen in the 70s and the 80s because there is a structural bid that exists from the growth of passive investing, from the fact that so many institutions, large institutions have mandates because of the TINA effect. Target date funds. Yeah, exactly, right? Target date funds, all those sorts of 401K, things. 401k, automatic mm-hmm. deposits from, Ex- exactly. from robo-advice. Robo exactly. It's big numbers exactly. when they're all... Uh, uh, when you add them all together, there is a structural bid. And then when you talk about the, the, the options exposure and the reflexivity from the dealer gamma hedging, there's a structural bid that is keeping this market propped as opposed to the market in the 70s and the 80s. So what I'm saying is that as long as we are able to avoid those exogenous type of, quote unquote, you know, of tail risk events that come out of nowhere, right, like a bombing, you know, or something like that. Pete or, Davidson getting his own show. <laughs> those right. sorts, those yeah, sorts yeah. of dynamics where people are offside because what what ends up happening is like everybody is running the same type of risk metric where it's like okay volatility increases market goes down x amount we're deleveraging that's their like auto liquidation system with a lot of these large institutions right as long as you can avoid that structurally the ball keeps going right and everybody's dancing to the tune because of the structural bid that remains but we can't avoid that forever there will be unfortunately an exogenous event at some point exactly you sound you, you you sound like you're ready for real vision uh, thank you. <laughs> this, this is unsustainable. What are these two charts? Global equity fund flows. Do we want to throw this one up? What are we looking at here? Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of plays This back is that counterbalance to everybody deleveraging. Um, this is the money that's, you're saying, coming in regardless? Right. So I think, you know, over the, the last two weeks, we've definitely been seeing this narrative, right? So you're seeing a lot of fund inflow. And then, you know, the next chart is fund outflow out of the uh, the money markets. 
Right. And then from what we've been seeing, a lot of buying in the ATSs, which is the dark. It doesn't, Chris, there doesn't appear to be any trend here. This really appears like in any given week, this can go all the way in either direction. Do I? Right. Like if you were to try to draw a trend line, there's nothing there. For sure. That's why I think that, you know, you can't you have to take some of these things with a grain of salt and understand the environment as to how you're applying them. Right. And understanding, okay, there is some sort of outflow in the money markets. Right. And there's a large inflow into, uh, you know, some of the equity funds. And then, you know, there's big buying in through the ATSs and the dark pools. It's like painting a picture for you. But you can't you can't anticipate exogenous events, right? Like so how do you like position for those spikes? Exactly. That's that's the beautiful thing, right? And this is the the alpha generator and, and the value add is our ability to go out and say the same way how a value investor would look at a stock and be like, this is extremely cheap for the the environment that we're in and what could potentially happen. We look at the probability assumption and say the same thing from a vol dynamic. So you don't need to predict. You just need to look at the market dynamics and say it pays to take risk now. Exactly. Based on based yeah. on the pricing that we're able to get. Right. And and when you're trading tails, right, it's it's so important to focus on where you're able to get filled in the price. So what does that, that look like though? Like how many different positions would you say you're laying down when you see those sorts of things? Or is that not the right way to look at it? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have a ton of different line items, right? It could be across single name vol, it could be across, you know, some VIX variants, the, the VIX ETPs, right? Using these very type of complex structures to to replicate that payoff profile. Because there's two things that our investors really care about. One is Look, when shit hits the fan, are we getting paid out in a big way, right? So are we inventorying? Are we positioning for a very big payday when it occurs? And the second thing is, are you mitigating the bleed that comes with it, right? So are you not burning away the capital as we go down? And if you're balancing those two things effectively, right, we're doing our job. And, and something that we like to tell the clients is like, look, when everything's going to shit, we're not, we're not moving at that point, right? We're doing our job. When the market is grinding higher and you guys are making money on the rest of your things, right? That's when we have to make sure, okay, are we balancing the book? Are we putting on exposure where we should be, right? That's the hard work. When things are going crazy, it kind of eases up at that point. Your life is easier because things are directionally going. And, and, yeah. Right. Um, I, so, so you feel as though infl- the consensus on inflation is now um, severe enough where that's no longer the big risk? Is, is what you're saying. I personally believe equity markets are digesting it, right? I think from a credit standpoint, you may have a little bit bigger of a factor. And and I know I'm very well aware of how attached the credit market is to the equity market during real moments of, of, of market stress. But I'm also understanding as to where rates are and the structural bid that exists. I think personally that if we can get past this, which I think we will in a prolonged time, I think people will look back on this. We, and ha- like, we have the equivalent of six rate hikes at the short end already and spreads are not blowing out. The credit spreads are not. And when you look at like the banks that reported, they, I know they're, I know they're not like reserving heavily for that, that at this point, but their balance sheets are amazing still. Right. Oh, incredibly. And I mean, also you have to factor in the reserves that they already put in place, you know, as a result of Cecil and as a result of, you know, the pandemic. So, I mean, they don't have to reserve more at this point. They probably took, too much already. Yeah. They can't drop much more down to the bottom line than they already have either. Mm-hmm. But they probably don't feel this this crunch that all of a sudden they have to get ready and for. And non-financial it. companies loaded up on debt in 2020, 2000, well, 2021. They just feasted because rates were so low. So they're well capitalized. If rates do rise, they don't necessarily need to borrow anyway. Exactly. I mean, so from a banking perspective, I mean, they're well positioned. They might, there might be some choppiness, you know, just as there always is when you're dealing with economic issues and, you know, the market kind of 
freaks out and overreacts. But the stability and the capital of the banks is very strong now. Oh, I want to ask you this. So uh, Weisenthal yesterday did a chart showing the two-year yield versus Marcus and all these like high-yield savings, high-yield, LOL, these savings accounts. And they didn't, they didn't keep up. So the two-year yield is now giving you more than Marcus. And on the other side, Robinhood is, and I'm sure all the other companies are raising their margin requirements or raising their margin rates because rates are going up. So margin rates are going up, savings account rates are not going up. It has been a terrible time to be a saver for, I don't know, last 10, Most 12, of our adult lives. Yeah, most of our adult <laughs> lives. Basically, once we started making money that we could save, it became a terrible time to be yes. a saver. Um, but I think that has been an interesting challenge when you look at some of these online banks because the promise of them was, hey, there's no branches uh, you know, we don't have all these costs, so we will always be able to pay you one, two percent. I mean, I remember I tweeted this a while ago. I was watching an episode of Welcome Back Card, Welcome Back Cotter, where uh, they put like their school fund savings in the bank because they got six percent <laughs> in like the seventies, where like that just blew my mind. But anyway, going back, like, unfortunately, for there's a lot of reasons, the online savings accounts have not been able to maintain that promise of paying. You know deposit rates so in excess I, of 2%. I think when Marcus came out in order to attract deposits like every new high yield savings does, they'll, they're willing to lose money, Yep. right? So they will subsidize rates. If rates were at half a percent, they'll be at 60 or 70 basis points, whatever it is. And now that they've got deposits, it's reversed because nobody's really leaving anyway. That's the stickiest money. You're not leaving a high, you know, savings account for an, uh, an additional 20 basis points. So sucks if for the consumer. If somebody does, it's good, that's but, probably a bad customer account. Oh, totally. Somebody's jumping for an extra 20 basis points elsewhere. You're thrilled to lose them. Goldman was not going to make money off that person. Yeah. Right. Um, I want to get into this uh, last thing on inflation. We better hope it's coming down or we better hope it's at least priced in by the market. This is average PE by inflation levels. Um, Not great. Now, I understand that rates are low, which is probably maybe more supportive than prior periods of high inflation. But – uh, in a 6 to 8% inflation regime historically, which is kind of where we are now, P.E. ratio of 11.6. Next chart. We have definitely had multiple compression on that trailing 12-month P.E. It's beautiful. Started, uh, started 21 at 23, and now it's 20. But this is a long way from uh, – what did I say? 11? 11 point, yeah, 11.6. <laughs> <laughs> this is a long way from – the historical average when inflation has been this high. You know, so. like I think that inflation might have peaked, but so let's just say that it, it, that we're not going to see seven percent prints anymore, and it, we only see I'm using air quotes six six percent and then five percent. Like that's still fucking high, right? So like it could it could decelerate and still suck. Yeah, and I mean it's also again it's something we have not seen at le- inflationary levels that we have not seen since at least before the last financial before crisis. I was, before I was born, literally. Oh uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, before I was born. Also, uh, I'm like, oh yeah, 40 years. Woohoo! I'm under 40. I was around for that. I was born in 77. I could tell you, it was murder. <laughs> Those early 80s uh, inflation. You couldn't rates get pacifiers. Tough. It was terrible. Yeah, it was. So you should have seen what we were paying for strollers. Carlton, what's going on with Janice? Oh my God. Well, Nelson Peltz wants to fix it, basically. So Janice Henderson, you remember Peltz? Wait, went- let's back up. Yeah. You cover activists for Barons. Yes. You do a piece on activists every week. Yep. Okay, there's a lot of activity right now. There is. And okay. a few things have made the case for that. So 2020, you did not see a lot of activist activity because any activist would look like a total asshole. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Even, <laughs> even Icon was like, all right, not this, not this year. Yeah, like not this year. Like <laughs> not, if we had stuff the in the works, we're, we're not going to like 
push forward too hard. Like if we already have a foot in the door, we'll kind of nudge a little bit. So 2020, you didn't see much. 2021, the you also saw valuations stretch so much. So you wouldn't see an activist wanting to go in when stocks are yeah, they're fine. Like Everybody's making money. Exactly. And right. well, we really think you can improve margins. If you're like a Robinhood investor, you're like, I don't care. Like I've made, you know, 10, 20% yeah. on this. But now, you know, we're starting to see, I mean, what we were just talking about, we're starting to see more volatility. We're starting to see a more normalized market. So we are seeing a lot of these activist campaigns that were either halted, put on pause, whatever, emerging. Um, in the case of Janice, you know, we saw Nelson Peltz go into rival Invesco and Janice at the same time. Uh, I didn't even know this is, do you know, I didn't even know this was publicly traded until I read your article. Janice is a public asset. Yep. What's the market cap? Good All right. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry. We'll edit in you answering later. Uh, but it's not it's not big. No, it is not big. Why is Nelson Peltz interested in turning around asset managers? It's five and a half billion. Yeah. So when you look at asset managers, one Peltz has experience here. He was in like Mason ages ago, and yeah. basically it's an issue of consolidation. You've got like BlackRock. I mean, okay, I'm flubbing on like you know the market cap of Janice at what did you say? Five, five and a half. All right. What is BlackRock now, and yeah. how much is BlackRock? I mean, so how is Janice going to compete with? I can't. Yeah. So. You do need some sort of consolidation in the industry. Everyone thought that he'd be trying to marry Janice and Invesco together. Failing that, you got to stem one client outflows because clients are saying, you know, I'm paying you whatever fee. I'm not getting the returns. I could go into an iShares account and still make money. Right. So they've got to boost their margins. They've got to stem, stem the client so how outflows. Did, but how, I guess how does Nelson Peltz, how did he turn around Invesco? Because I'm trying to picture – what a corporation can do to fix the returns of the funds. Like it's, it seems like it would be like you would just be guessing. You, 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 know, what I mean? you know what I mean by that? Like if you, if you have a guy that's doing active management for you at the flagship fund, you could fire him and bring in someone new, but you don't know if that person's going to work out. Yeah, for sure. I and, think it's a cost question, right? You know, it's not so much – I mean, one, yes, you do want to improve performance, but it's also – how many managers do you have? How outdated is your, is your technology? You know, like where can we streamline? How many process? funds are we administering that nobody's investing in? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Okay. So he fixed Invesco. Like it was successful. Yeah. He was pretty good with Invesco. Uh, he was on the board for a little more than a year. Returns improved. And also he agrees with what the board strategy is now. You know, like he felt aligned. Janice has trailed a little bit, and they are looking for a new CEO. So you just know that Nelson Peltz wants a seat at the table for that decision. You know how they could fix? Uh, you know they could fix Janice. How Bill Gross? No, <laughs> tell us strategy. There you go. <laughs> I'm just are, saying. Are you I'm filling just, out your resume? <laughs> I might have to. I'm just, I'm just saying. All right. What are the other big activist campaigns that you're writing about right now? Well, but, so we had uh, quite a few. So we had. Uh, Sachem, which is going after U.S. foods. This is an interesting one just because when you think about what, you know, the consumer space has been doing for the last two years as everyone was stocking up. So now to have an activist in that sort of uh, space, pretty interesting. What about um, what's, what's, what's U.S. foods? Uh, food suppliers. So um, Supply supermarkets. Yeah. So then you also have uh, Dollar Tree. That one always seems to attract activist attention. Uh there was a lot of talk where it is no longer Dollar Tree. It's Dollar becoming Tree. Dollar yeah. 20, Dollar yeah. 25 tree. What about Peloton? Peloton, that so this is a really interesting one because Peloton is still tightly controlled, and even though they had the CEO change, he, how, he owns a lot of the company. He basically controls the company, and he stays on as executive chairman. So you have an activist that's going in saying, "Hey, we want you to sell your company." Well, you have the guy that's saying, 
No, no. I don't want to do that. Yeah. No, thanks. I think what you get with this one, though, is a lot more headline stress for the company. You know, it's not necessarily that I think he'll be running a board situation, you know, a proxy fighter or anything like that. I don't know that uh, the activists would be able to force the sale of the company. But you think about the Peloton headlines we had, you know, just uh, are they halting production of bikes? Did they overproduce the insider selling? How about know? TV shows using the product to kill Popular characters. Yes. Multiple shows. By the way, they gave, they gave up that entire pop, that like Amazon rumor pop. It was up like 30% on the day. They gave it all back. Completely gave yeah. it up. I mean, I would think Apple would be the more natural Same. acquirer just because all of you know the Apple hardware is so in tune with what Peloton does. But there was a really interesting article. So you were just talking about the TV show. So you had the Sex and the City reboot, uh, you know, where I don't think I'm spoiling anything. Uh, Mr. Big died after riding show on Peloton. show is unwatchable. You watching it? Uh, I mean, can we talk about this yeah, here? Can we? No, it was no, terrible. It was terrible. I can't let it go. How bad it is? It, yeah, it was just everything that was like watch interesting You're about the characters. No, no, actually, no. But I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. <laughs> Did you watch the original? No, you, you were no. too young for that shit. Yeah, I was too young. It was like in its heyday in like '99, 2000. Mm-hmm. You weren't watching that, but it was iconic, right? As, it was. Kid, it was important. It was important in many ways, but this, I don't know what this is. I, it was. I'm not saying that the characters in the original were geniuses, but they had a worldliness to them. I mean, they were New Yorkers. They knew, they knew their way around. And, I mean, now you see these characters just, like, running around not knowing how to interact in a world of, like, Dude, it's like fucking woke grandmothers. Like, oh, my God. It, it was They're, painful. like, trying so hard to ingratiate themselves with, like, every community under the sun. And All in, like, 22 minutes. Well, I guess 30 minutes, but... I, I, yeah. Duncan, right. Duncan, throw the show up. I want to watch it right now. Yeah, <laughs> Duncan, just queue up three episodes. We're not busy tonight. I'll pass. Uh, all right. So I forget where we were. I oh, wa- just real quick. Oh, I just yeah. want to say. So one of the things when that happened, you know, the Sex in the City thing, big dies. Uh, I think it was Simi and Siegel, Wall Street analyst. He said the problem with Peloton is it's losing its own narrative. Yeah. And that was the thing. It's like. I can't believe they used it in Boba Fett. That was yeah. crazy that they were on Pelotons <laughs> in that last scene. What do you mean by losing its narrative? It just, you know, whether or not there was an agreement beforehand, hey, we want to use your bike, or I, I don't know whether those details came through, but when another, when a television show is driving the story of your company, yeah, you should be the one telling the story it's of your company. Good, it's rarely a good thing. Yeah, so, and the fact that it happened twice, I mean, I don't want to give another spoiler for- What was the other show it was on? Billions. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Really? No, I know. (laughs) And the fact that they're not selling any more bikes, that's not great either. Not great either. I mean, how much? I think they kind of tapped the market for it. How many people can, you know, have one in their house? If you didn't buy one yet, why are you going to? Or why wouldn't you buy a used one? Exactly. Yeah, for sure. You a Peloton guy? No, not at all. Ride a real bike like a man like me? (laughs) I actually really dislike the whole Peloton group. You know, when, when they hurt. I'm sorry, they just... Wait, why do you hate about Peloton? No, because look, look, when when COVID hit, you had guys thinking that they were American Olympic cyclists. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, all the, right all the Bloomberg why trading chat... talk about him? He's right here. Every trading chat that I was in, like, Bloomberg's was just lighting up with talk, Peloton, Peloton, are you, are you on it this time? Are you on that time? And it's like, dude, you, you're sitting there eating like five pizzas in Chinese and then you're, you're talking about, oh, yeah. 20-minute yeah. session. Yeah, you know, exactly. yeah. I never got the social aspect of riding. Like, meet me at... No. No, yeah, working yeah. out, I don't want to talk yeah. to anyone. I don't want anyone look. Like, that's the time, like, I don't even always listen to music when I work out because that's just my, like— I ride my Peloton on mute, literally. Can we, t- can, we, can we tell the truth, though? How much of this was about guys my age falling in love with the Peloton instructors? <laughs> uh, oh, I mean— Because that's all—my group chats are, 
you know, oh, Josie's on. Like, like there's a lot of that shit going on. No, it on. sounds, whenever I hear guys talking about it, it's always like, I've got a date with, and I can't remember the name. But I mean, it does have that feel of like, oh, well, I'm seeing so-and-so tonight. Yeah. There's like a little bit, there's like, I've been trapped in my house with my wife, who I love. <laughs> but, you know, Cassandra is running a hip-hop spin class. And, and she's encouraging you and telling you you're doing great. Yeah, this chick is in my ear telling me how great I am. And what's the subscription? Eight dollars. How much does it cost? I think, it's is not it still 40 Is it? It used Wait, to be forty. I feel like that's an easy thing to pay for when you can't spend money anywhere else. Yeah, and and maybe now that dynamic changes. I don't know. Maybe it changes a little bit. So you never did a Peloton. No. 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 What did you do? Climb trees. How'd you? What did you do physically <laughs> during the pandemic? Uh, I'm, I run a little bit. Okay. Walk. Walk around. Okay. Skateboard occasionally. Skateboard during the pandemic. Okay. Uh, all right. I wanted to ask you guys about block trades. This is big in the news this week and. We'll get through this, and we'll go into favorites. Um, you you look like you have a hot day tonight, by the way. Yeah, really? You, you do? Thanks, I appreciate yeah? that. Looking, looking oh. good, man. <laughs> yeah, go for a stroll if you don't. Okay. <laughs> uh, block trades take place when a company or a large shareholder wants to sell a lot of stock at once. Unloading it in small dribs could take weeks and might drive down the price. So banks are asked to bid for the entire block. They typically submit bids at a discount to the market price. Winning banks then offer the shares to clients at a slight premium to the agreed price. So basically, we have more block trades than ever because we have more IPOs and larger IPOs than ever. And inevitably, there are going to be big blocks of stock for sale. And it's really hard to sell a million shares of something <laughs> uh, in 500 share increments, especially given the liquidity stuff that you were talking about. So then the question becomes like, you have Wall Street banks who are charged with finding buyers, mm -hmm. and inevitably in that process, they're going to talk about how much is for sale, and people will have the opportunity to front run. And then you might have people deliberately uh, carrying that out. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a challenge because on the banks, it's kind of they have to do some level. I would almost say of like due due diligence in getting pricing for these things. You know, so they have to talk to people. Yeah, and say this is coming. Yeah, they have, and I mean, whether it's like you're going in and saying in the specific or, hey, so I've got a block of you know uh, a fitness company that I like. Yeah, I mean, no, but they, you've no, got to get price information. Hypothetically, if I were to have, <laughs> if, if I were to have fifty thousand shares. Of a certain fitness co connected fitness company, I can't tell you yeah. which one. Could be anything. Could be anything. What would you pay for that? Like that's kind of the process. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it has to be. And I mean, yes, it would be wonderful if markets were totally fair and you know, average people would get the same information. But they're not, and they're never going to be. Block trades, uh, seventy billion dollars worth of this type of transaction in twenty twenty one, which was a five year high. Morgan Stanley was the most active. Um, leading more than a quarter of the deals by value, they earned three hundred million in fees. The E Trade baby only does block yeah. trades. Does this show up? <laughs> does this show up in any of the liquidity stuff that you look at? I think you know the way how we look at not specifically this right, but you could tell when chunky orders are coming through on screens, right? You talk with guys through different chats, right? You have an understanding. Okay, this much is getting done. It gets done at the same time every day, right? So it's like things like that. You understand. I'm actually more surprised that people. We're not knowledgeable of this, right? From a trading standpoint, right? If you're a trader on the desk, you understand that these sorts of things go on all the time. They've been going on. I for think years. what people weren't knowledgeable about was the process yeah. and what a gray area it is to have a trader talking to a select group of elite investors about mm -hmm. big amounts of stock that are coming 
And I think that part of it is probably what captured people's attention. Yeah. And and then the investigations where they say like that I think there's a guy at Morgan Stanley that they took his computer or something. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you think is gonna happen with all this? Somebody pay a fine and we'll move on. Yeah. I, I yep, think so definitely. because it's, it's, I mean, it has to be I mean, it feels icky. I mean, talking about it, you're like, oh, it totally sounds like insider trading or whatever, but it does have to be a way that markets work. I mean, like, how can you simply sell millions of shares at once without causing... Well, you can't. Like, block trades have been around since the 70s. Yeah. So this is a longstanding thing. But what's changed, again, is you have a lot of new participants in the market Mm -hmm. who don't know anything. And they're like, wait, what's going on? Because (laughs) they are sitting in these stocks that are being block sold Mm -hmm. and just getting hammered. And they can't believe that there's somebody that knew... That they, and they didn't. But, I mean, there's other ways you might not know in the specific sense, but, you know, you think about a company goes public, you know who the early shareholders are, you know, like, maybe there's, like, a six-month lockup or something, and not that everyone liquidates at six months, but these are things that, as an investor, some level of that information is available to you. So if you know, like, the early holders of a company typically have, like, I don't know, like, a five, six, seven-year time horizon, you should always be thinking, hey, what if they liquidate? What? How would we they know, do? Right, and we know the lockup – We. We know the lockup periods and when yeah. they expire. Um, on the direct listings, we don't. True. Because there is no there lockup. There is no, right. So, and there are some very big direct listing stocks trading in the market where you would just have no way to guess when when insiders want, might want to sell mm-hmm. big chunks of stock. Uh, last thing on this, another investigation, short sellers, federal pros- – this is WSJ. Federal prosecutors are investigating – whether short sellers conspired to drive down prices by sharing damaging reports ahead of time and engaging in illegal trading tactics. So basically the Justice Department is taking hardware and communications from some very prominent, famous short sellers and trying to see whether or not they're talking to each other prior to releasing a report and or trading ahead. Uh, this is another thing where, like, color me shocked. Doesn't everybody yeah. know that this is color going on? Shocked. Exactly. What's your take on this? Yeah, color me shocked. Like, I, I'm, I'm. Surprised you mean to tell me there's gambling in this establishment? <laughs> right, right, right. And, and and look, if you if you speak with other guys that are in the business, right, that speak with other guys in the business, you're bound to catch wind of these things, right? There's been numerous times where you know you hear at you know, somewhere through the grapevine, look, this guy is interested in doing this. He's putting out this piece at this time. It's at dinner. It's not on, it's not on Bloomberg Messenger. What what exactly is illegal though? What are they being charged for? Is it spoofing? They're not being charged. They're just being investigated. What are they being investigated for? Spoofing is illegal. So pretty much they're, they're kind of like front running their work, right? And letting people know ahead of time that, look, I'm putting out this this report. And they're co-mingling. Like, okay. Let's say Carlton runs a hedge fund and she's bullish on a stock. And then we have lunch. We go for sushi, and she lets us know, I'm about to put out research that says XYZ company is 30% undervalued. And then we trade. That's not – there's nothing wrong with – we're not colluding. Yeah, that's, that's the point, right? From a moral – when you look at this, right? So, so like, let's say if you had a bunch of aliens looking on the planet and they were looking at what's, what's transpiring. What is morally wrong about that? Because when you think about how self-side research gets put, like isn't it the same – Dynamic, right? Like, well, no, no. Sell side research. The analyst can't tip off his hedge fund friends that he's about to upgrade a stock. No, but you talk with people, right, and say like, "Look, I'm bullish on this name." Okay, I could be bearish on this name, right? Research is a bad example. I think the better example is like an ideas dinner, and it's like twelve hedge funds, and they're just informally like, "I'm bullish on this stock." Right. 
it's not illegal to say that you're bullish on something before you buy it. From from a moral standpoint, I I kind of view the same things. Yeah. Right. I, I I really don't see you know what the real big issue is. Well, so the spoofing part though is illegal, and I think this is probably what they're really getting at. They're trying to figure out if right before these research reports come out, somebody is sending fake sell orders to an exchange to generate activity that makes the market nervous, and then the report hits. But isn't it also true that you would have to do that to such an insane degree? I don't, well, I don't know. I mean, so there's an example where, like, it wouldn't just be like, oh, I'm putting forth, you know, like, making it look like I'm doing, like, one trading lot or something. I mean, you would have to be kind of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to kind of, like, create this how hard, of activity. How hard, how hard is it to do what Carlton's talking yeah, about? What is, to, a, what is a fake trade? What go, is, go to any canceling orders, prop desk trading and canceling, in trading the world. Go to any prop desk in the world. And if you look hard enough, you'll see that. You'll it see goes that activity all the time. Mm-hmm. Every trader understands, especially like big market makers that control that name, mm-hmm. understand how to do these things. I will move an order. I will shift an order. I'll move something. Like is that painting the tape, but to the downside? Like paint <laughs> painting the tape historically is like one of my fund's biggest holdings is camp is Campbell Soup. The quarter is about to close. I think I can get this thing fifty cents higher, and that might have a material impact on my alpha versus the benchmark. And so I'm going to paint the tape with buy orders that I might unwind tomorrow. This is the opposite. Right. Let me give you guys an example. Let's say if you are a trader, right, we were just talking about that other dynamic with the block Mm -hmm. trades, right? You now have to buy $50 million order, right, that needs to get filled today. Are you just going to go and just start buying stock, like, right out the open? No, you're going to buy a little bit, right? You're going to move the market down a little bit. You buy a little bit more here, right? You'll you'll pull your orders out to, you know, kind of see where the market stabilizes. It's almost the same thing, right? You have to, like, work and maneuver the order. That's trading. Right? That's mm-hmm. trading. Yeah. Right? And, and, like, when people talk about spoofing and this and that, right? Sure, one could be a little more aggressive, but I could guarantee you every prop desk in the U.S. has some sort of form of their trader doing that specifically when it comes to large orders. Now, what about scalping? So here's here's another example. I issue short research on. Um, I'll just I'll just make a, I'll just make up a name. I issue short research on the Batnick Corporation. How dare you, sir? And according to my research, I think basically he's cooking the books. His accounting is a sham. His products don't work. Blah blah blah. So I put out my I, – I sell the stock short. Then I go on Twitter and I drop my report and I DM it to an uh, an anchor at Bloomberg. I DM it to a reporter at the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. I make this whole big fuss. The stock falls 20 points. And then I cover it. After I've done my media barrage and I scare the shit out of everybody and then I cover it, but I don't disclose that I covered it. I think – so that presents a problem, but couldn't you make the same argument in reverse? If somebody's bullish on a stock and they put out a report and the stock runs up on the report and then they sell it, that's just as fucked up. But one of them seems shadier than the other. I think it's yeah. contextual, right? Because if it's like, look, I'm coming in with a large order and I'm just moving the stock down, you know, 3% and I'm getting out. Okay, was you really bearish on it, right? Did that change the value so much or is it just are you putting shekels in your pocket, right? So I, I think these things are contextual. But if you talk about it, I put well, up wait, before. Especially you say a stock is a zero, which you hear like yeah, people that yeah. are active as shorts, you often hear them say this is a zero. Yeah. If it goes from 80 to 60 and they cover it and they don't disclose that they covered it, did you really think it was a zero? Yeah. 
or were you using hyperbole to move it close to zero? I feel like the regulators could look at this and, you know, kind of attach a price target to it, right? So if if the analyst has a price target and it reaches there, it could be contextual to say, okay, well, this is his call. It got there. That's fine, right? But if it's like, yeah, you're calling it a zero, right? And the stock's at 50 and it goes to 45 and you cover, that's <laughs> right, like, yeah. like, what are we really doing here? So this, right. So maybe this is just going to be a one-by-one situation where they're not going to treat all sell- short sellers the same way and say that releasing a report and being short is necessarily bad it's maybe what you do after yeah i i, I think i would hope that they are you guys covering this i, I mean a, I would a little and i think the other issue and that especially the sec is looking at is like the amount of transparency in the market so i mean short sellers one are i mean when you look at like 13s short positions don't have to be disclosed here so there's this whole part of the market that operates that average investors don't have a view into and i think what regulators are trying to do and maybe they're not picking the right avenues for doing it but they're just trying to find their way at where can we create a law or a precedent or something so that we can have more transparency on this like really mysterious part of the market? I don't want to see a situation where short sellers aren't allowed to speak publicly mm-hmm. or aren't allowed to be on Twitter. I almost don't want there to be short seller transparency because with the targeting that goes on, they'll just get blown up. And yeah. I think you need short sellers. Yeah, you I need mean, short sellers. I think with some short seller transparency, because then it becomes so much wider. I mean, yeah, short sellers do get blown up, but- when you realize how many there are out there, it's like you're really going to – they can't be attacked that much because there are so many of them. Oh, they can be attacked. A, a few could. Like they, they, they could put people out of business. They, well, they have, to, they have to be very careful about, I think, shorting stocks but putting themselves in a position where they can get boxed in Yep. because there's already too many shorts in that name. And structurally, like, there's just no way out. But I think they are adapting. They're, like, they're not operating the way they were in January 21. Can't. yeah. Oh my god, that was ridiculous. Except- I just, I just don't like a situation where they're not allowed to talk. Like, yeah, it's a you should be able issue. to be bearish and think a stock is overvalued and go on Twitter without people looking at you and saying you're distorting. Uh, like, you should be able to be negative publicly. I just, and I don't know how you legislate or whatever. You know, whether or not someone is being disingenuous or not, because that's well, what the here's issue how. is. If you yeah. see scalping, yeah, like flagrant, like dude, you just went on five TV shows trashing this company and you covered it for five points like that's how you let that's how you mm-hmm. you that's how you draw the line and also very obvious examples of spoofing if they see you ra- sending fake orders and canceling them routinely right as you're dropping a short report like it's I mean, it's an easy case to to make for a single stock yes but then you could also say you know the short seller could say well here's what else happened in my portfolio mm-hmm. i had to cover my position. Here's what else was, oh, what was going on in the market. I had to do this. You know, I, my conviction is still, and I mean, look, they may be lying very well, but you know, there are going to be other things where they can kind of get out of that. I think we could all agree. That's like the hardest job. Being a professional short seller is the degree of difficulty there is probably harder than almost all of our jobs, especially yeah. the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I think the regulators have to get out of this gray area because a lot of times when we think about financial regulation, there's always this gray area. And I feel like with something like this, you need to make this black and white. Okay, you can or you can't do that, right? Because everything is a gray area and you see guys, you know, get in trouble for something and then some people are kind of doing the same exact thing and, Mm -hmm. you know, nobody's getting in trouble for it. So if I said to you, all right, here's the new short seller rule. You can publish a report, you can tweet, but you have to stay short for a period of 10 days. Is that fair? I feel like something along the lines of that is fair. Or it could be contingent on, again, their price target. 
right? Because if oh, if you put right. out a price target, then you have to cover yeah. within a certain threshold. But mm-hmm. again, back to Carlton's, Carlton's point, like, what if the story materially changes? Is it realistic to cover near that price target? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You so have that's other portfolio why the gray area yeah. exists. It's like it's very hard. It's very hard. Um, all right, let's wrap here and go to favorites because first of all, you guys are awesome, and I could talk to you both all day. Um, but I want to be mindful of the fact that the sun is going, the sun's getting real low. Um, first of all, do you have any favorites for us, Michael, before I do mine? I do. What do you got? Uh, my friends, Tom Morgan and Frederick, I don't want to uh, butcher his last name. Frederick writes a great, uh, uh, sub called Necker value. Oh yeah. We met that. That guy was here, right? I've hung with him before. Yeah, we've met. Okay. Yeah, we met him. So so Frederick and Tom did this amazing podcast. Tom is like a deep thinker and somehow writes about finance and does it in like a really unique and interesting way. That was an an, uh, an amazing listen. Necker's insecurity analysis on Substack. Yeah, it was awesome. It was really, really good. Okay. Uh, Carlton, what have you brought for us today? All right. So I was on vacation last week, so I was going through my magazines. There was one piece in Harper's Bazaar and for us millennial Gen X types, it was a piece on the women's music in the 90s, like your Fiona Apple, Lauren Hill. Amos, Lauren Hill, like her Alanis. album, her Alanis. album, Alanis. Meredith Brooks. Oh my God. So did you watch the Alanis documentary? I, I can't yet. Okay. Well, you, know, you can't well, go she, back. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, part of it is I can't go back because I remember when Alanis first came out and where I was in my life, you know, Oh my God, boys. Broke I was my nine heart. years old. Were you 13? Yeah. 12. Just guessing. Yeah. Okay. 94. Yeah. 94, 95 ish. Yeah. So, like, I am not that person anymore. She's not that person anymore. <laughs> a, but yeah, we mom. were both here, and we kind of went in opposite directions, I feel. Yeah, you didn't go into music. No. Right. Oh, my God, you would not want me to. But, uh, yeah, so it was just, like, this fun read where you kind of, like, we took for granted, like, the incredible music that we had in the 90s. This and- is the All right, this is called The Joy of Sad Girl Music. Yes. Who was your, fa- your favorite from that period? Uh, like a Gwen Stefani girl. She was so I big. You could I mean, I did like Gwen Stefani. I was moodier, so it was Fiona uh, Apple for me. Like, so, do you remember the TV show Daria? Yeah, yes, that was you. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that, but yeah, people <laughs> in like people middle school and that. high school. I mean, I wasn't that monotone, but I kind of had that like I wear all black and like you know I smoke my clothes cigarettes. <laughs> all right. Hilarious. And as part of my pledge to read more non-work related things, good for you, Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking. I've heard of this, but I have no idea what it is. Yeah, so it's a book that – it's a sad book. She wrote it um, for the year after her husband suddenly passed away. Oh, right, um, so it's a feel-good. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, like, I'm realizing I don't look that good because I'm, like, my sad girl music. Are you okay? Are you okay? T- Do you want to talk? I mean, we're talking right now. Okay. But, um, no, it's just – I mean, it's about grief, but I think it's like one of those ones that you walk away where you're kind of walk away feeling more appreciative for like moments you have with people. And who is she? A, she's a writer or she happened to have written? Yeah, she was a writer. Um, she actually passed away at the end of this year. Um, okay. Or I'm sorry, at the end of 2021. Uh, oh my God. Gosh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Dude, not cool. All right, my bad. But no, a writer who was really known for documenting like the 1960s culture in, you know, California and uh, all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, like it's a good book to pick up now. And there's like there's like stuff there that you can get out of it. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like one of those ones. It is a sad book. It's about grief. But it's one of those ones, like especially after everything we've all gone through in the last two years where you kind of like walk away where you're like, yeah, I want to do I want to connect more with people. I want to, you know, Oh, I'm the opposite. Like, really? yeah, the circle is getting smaller. I mean, it's for me, it's getting smaller, but it's but the ones I do want to connect with, I I want to connect. I with. walk around my town with my mask on. I'm like 
quadruple vaccinated. I've had COVID <laughs> six times. I have the mask on just so like there's people that I've known for 10 years that I'm just done. You wear with. a full face mask. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm wearing a motorcycle helmet at, the <laughs> store at this point. So I'm, I don't want to connect with anybody except for you guys. Uh, <laughs> you brought us donuts, but did you bring us a favorite? No, I I'm going to hit those donuts hard. <laughs> just tell the Fruity Pebbles donuts. Do you do anything other than fi uh, finance? Yeah, All so markets? I, yeah, so I actually, uh, I box and I do jujitsu. Same. Oh, no, wait, yes. me too. I don't really? do jujitsu. I box. Uh-huh. Not you go to well. Boxing, go to boxing gym? Yeah. How yeah. long have you been doing that? Uh, so I've been boxing for about eight years. I've been doing jujitsu for about seven years. What's the difference between boxing and jujitsu in terms of, like, getting good at it? Oh, man, jujitsu takes so long. It's such a, it, they, they call it human chess because it's all very tactical. You ever like, see Warrior? I just rewatched that. Amazing movie. No, I Tom didn't. Hardy? No, I didn't. I didn't. I thought you meant Warriors, like the movie about the gang kids in the 70s. Oh, I love that movie. Yes. I would rewatch it. Warriors amazing. You should watch it. It's on Netflix now. So you got like you good? Like are you good boxer? You good fighter? I mean, come on. Yeah. Are you doing yeah. it for weight? Like are you doing it for like um fitness and to compete or mostly fitness? So I'll tell you guys this I I, I tell this to people in the finance business because mm -hmm. they they kind of get a kick out of it. I'm actually the training partner to a guy who's ranked uh eighth in the UFC. Come on. Serious. His name is Gregor Gillespie. Wow. What does it mean to be a training partner? He just beats the shit out of you? Yeah, so I'm one of the guys I'm on the jiu-jitsu side that, you know, when he's getting ready for camp, we get, like, the call and we get to go. You so know? Are you really just doing fight club? on the ground. So he's yeah, like, it's fight club. Yeah. <laughs> so is it fight club-esque? Like, are you, like, getting very injured or not really? No, no, surprisingly, you know, sometimes my partners will see, like, marks and stuff on my face. Um, but, I, you know, I don't really get a lot of marks and stuff like that. So when he's competing, do you get really excited? Yeah, yeah. It, it, right. It's an amazing feeling because, you know, I, I think uh, the whole gym is, is pretty excited. You know, guys push each other and then it's like. You know, your body feels pretty beaten down. Like Sundays I'll wake up and I'm just like, oh, my legs, my back, like everything hurts. What's the dividing line between guys that compete and guys that are the training partners for guys that compete? What what's uh, what stands between one becoming the other? Well, the skill level is tremendously different, right? So, of course, I'm not saying I, I, I beat up on Gregor at all, right? I get whooped nine times out of right, – actually, right. ten times out of ten. Right. Right, but I think, uh, you know – the ability for you to kind of go in there and, and give a guy work and, you know, work with him and, you know, be be tactical in your approach and be somewhat okay, right, good yeah, enough yeah. To, to, to be a training partner. I think it's it's a pretty cool thing. And he's risking, like, way more injury than you are. Oh, yeah. The guys, like in his fights. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, guys, can I give you your your uh, can I give you your name for competitive fighting if you want it? Like what I would put on your belt or whatever? Yeah, yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. All right. Chris, the Vix Sidio. I yes. like that one. I like right? that one. You just come yeah. with the volatility. Yeah, yeah. All right. So you can have that. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a good parting gift. I'll trademark that. Um, did anybody watch this shit on Netflix, uh, Inventing Anna? I'm watching it this weekend. I've, I have followed that story, though. Wasn't that a big story in, in a magazine? What? I, New I think New York magazine. I read Jessica the story. Wrote yeah, that. I have such professional it. jealousy of Jessica Pressler. Like, she is a fantastic reporter. I, I, I know her. So, really? Yeah. I mean, I kind of know her, but I, she's like, amazing. Yeah. How, how yeah. accurate is the story? Because there's some journalistic integrity stuff going on there. So. What does that mean? You well, throw, you throw in bars? I, I don't believe Jessica's that she actually the show, did this but stuff. It's, well, I'm saying I don't think that most journalists would compromise their integrity in the way that they're portraying. Who plays the journalist? It's Anna uh, Chumps. I uh, love Chumps. her. Oh, she's yeah. good. My yeah. girl. She's great. She, oh, and Veep. And, yeah. and Veep. Yeah. She's so great in the in the part. Um. She playing Jessica though. That's yeah. Right. I mean, they, they give her, her a different name yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know different details. Is it good? Yes. I haven't watched it yet. I I'm watching it this weekend. Okay. Um, but I mean the the print coverage of it was just 
awesome. Do you know about this? Inventing Anna? You know, I've actually seen like people tweeting about it, but check it out. So I want to share something my friend Brooke Hammerling uh, put on her blog, Pop Culture Mondays. Um, Brooke had a run in with this chick uh, like a few years Mm -hmm. ago. And it's like wholly in line with. So you should go to Pop Culture Mondays and read Brooke's whole thing. But Brooke knows a lot of famous people. Mm And she knows a lot of like high profile New Yorkers. Um, she's a pub like she was a, she was a publicist. Now she does corporate strategy advising CEOs, but she also knows everybody in Silicon Valley. So she was a perfect target mm-hmm. for this Anna person to approach. And she tells the story about just this girl pursuing her, like texts, calls, hysterical calls. Um, and Brooke just summed it up about like how is it possible that New York, in its entirety, bankers. Mm-hmm. Like real estate people, how do they all get taken in? And Brooke was saying, um, famous people are actually the biggest star fuckers. So it just takes one, one person to make the intro or speak highly of you and the gates open up. And again, this wasn't even about money in my opinion. It was about clout, the thing that is plaguing the world right now. I think Brooke has it nailed. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. They show like all of these rich and famous New Yorkers getting taken in and excited by their – being involved with Anna and her fake projects. Yeah, and I mean, wasn't one of her fake projects that it was like going to be a creative space? She like, was gonna rebuild. She was gonna build her own Soho house, but nobody like thought to ask like why. Yeah, she's just running around like my dad in Germany has all this money. She has a Russian accent. It's like the whole thing is crazy. But if you're like a trust fund kid or whatever living downtown, and like you know this woman's like, oh, I'm gonna build a space for creatives. I mean. You can see how a bunch of twenty yeah. somethings, you know, grew up rich would be like, Oh yeah, that's totally what I need to do. I'm a creative type. I need a spot to let my what I mean, it she just played into that kind of like self importance and, and she yeah, and she gets the bankers and the architects mm-hmm. who are like these old white guys who are not cool anymore. Yep. They feel like rock stars being in her orbit. And that's part of the seduction. Well, this was totally, I mean, I don't know how much time we have, but this was totally Adam Newman, right? Like Adam Newman with WeWork and he's going to all of these bankers and I mean- I don't know what episode you're on, but she starts living with Billy McFarlane, the guy that did the fire fest. No. That becomes her boyfriend. Wait, for real? I did not- I swear to God. And this is all real. So he's planning the fire fest. Yeah. And the best joke in the whole series, I'm going to ruin it. She goes, he like pitches her. She goes, that's too small scale for me. <laughs> and it ends, you know, we yeah. all know how it all right. Anyway, those are those were our favorites. Guys, good job on the good job on the favorites. And good job with all that. I don't know about all that MMT stuff. Uh, all of that uh, <laughs> MMT. Uh, MMT. <laughs> MMT. <laughs> You're a modern monitorist uh, fighter. Uh, all right, so we're gonna wrap up. Duncan, what was the thing that we were gonna tell people this week? We have an announcement? I we, forget. Well, we have a new a hat in the shop. We did that already. Yeah, go to idontshop.com for the latest in financial blogger fashion. You will not find the official Compound merchandise anywhere. That is the only place to go. That's idontshop.com. New Animal Spirits coming this Monday, Michael and Ben, and Wednesday. And an all-new What Are Your Thoughts on Tuesday. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you leave a review for the podcast. Make sure you hit the star button or whatever, depending on what app you're using. And we will see you next week. Good job. Good job. Good job. All right, we're going to start recording now that everyone's warmed up. Um, John, you want to plug, plug in the equipment now? <laughs> <laughs>